You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. As they make their exit, let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for another um, day and another time to be together and to look into your word and to um, explore what it means to be a people who are holy and in the context of Epiphany to think about how it is that you're calling us to be a light uh, to the nations. And so, Lord, we pray that you would form us in these, in these moments that we have together uh, to be more like you in Jesus' name. As we said over the past two weeks, uh, we're in the season of Epiphany, which again has traditionally celebrated the fulfillment of God's promise to bring light to the nations. Uh, and Epiphany, as we said multiple times, uh, celebrates the Magi as the fulfillment of that promise, since they were the first non-Jews to acknowledge Jesus as king. And so over the past two weeks, we've been looking at the background behind that promise of God to bring light to the nations. Uh, Two weeks ago, you might remember that we talked about God calling Abram and then the nation of Israel, and we considered that Yahweh's intent um, in selecting Israel was to form a nation who would would show all the other nations of the earth uh, a different way of being. Uh, From the very beginning, we said that Yahweh anchors his holy way in worship. He makes it clear that Israel would only be able to become a light to the nations first by remembering Yahweh's power and then also by remembering the specific way in which Yahweh has used his power to care for them in their time of weakness and oppression. And then we also said that they would become a light to the nations by reflecting his nature in their relationships with one another and in their treatment, particularly of those who had lived on the margins of society. The worship of the holy nation was meant to form the holy nation into the image, in other words, of the God whom they worshiped. Then last week, you remember that we looked at the law. Uh, The law, we said, was given by God to help the holy nation live into his holy way within their particular context. The law was given, you might say, to help put skin and bones on their holiness. Um, It was given to help Israel reflect Yahweh's different way of being. And more, more specifically, we could say that it was given to help reflect Yahweh's righteousness and justice and compassion In their interpersonal relationships with one another, it's true, but we could also say, and this is something that maybe we don't often think about, that the law was given to reflect Yahweh's righteousness and justice and compassion in the systems that held their society together as well. And in our conversation last week, we gave special attention to the way that the law laid out for the holy nation guidelines concerning their use of their property and their possessions. Um, When Yahweh delivered Israel from Egypt, he gave them land. Uh, Every family was given a portion of the land as a way of establishing a community of righteousness and justice and shalom, or righteousness and justice and uh, wholeness. Uh, The land was not to be given only to their leaders. The land was not to be used or distributed only among a few. No, in the wise design of God's law, all families received land as a source of provision to meet their needs. And so, consequently, part of the law focused on honoring property rights, the property rights of the people within the community, in order to maintain righteousness. Uh, We said that, as we were looking at Deuteronomy, we saw that uh, the instructions of the law, for example, uh, reminded the Israelites not to remove uh, boundary lines, not to steal from one another, not to covet each other's property. But then even beyond that, uh, that, uh, those guidelines concerning righteousness, 
the holy nation was called through the law, we said, to use their land also to take care of the orphan and the widow, the foreigner and the Levite, who were those who did not possess land within the holy nation. Uh, Property and its benefits, in other words, weren't to be hoarded, even though they had certain rights related to their property, but they were to be shared so that no poor existed among the holy nation. In fact, that's a specific statement that is made or an explicit statement that is made in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 4 as Yahweh establishes the principle of debt forgiveness, which is a holy principle even in our own very own context. And so not only is worship foundational in establishing the holy nation's distinctiveness, but generosity, the, the liberal use of property and possessions for the benefit of those in need, is also foundational in establishing the holy nation's distinctiveness among the nations. And yet, despite Yahweh's design, rather than living into his holy way, Israel was ultimately seduced by the way of nations and their kings. They were more interested in what was prevalent among the nations than they were in being holy so that they could be a light to the nations. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, which I think is a key passage, in, in a key turning point sort of in Israel's history, it's several hundred years after the law was given, but after struggling during that period of time, or for a period of time during the period of the judges, to be faithful to Yahweh's law, and sort of struggling between that and being lured away by the trust of the nations, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation that was called to be holy so that they could be a light to the nations and show them a different way of being actually makes the conscious choice to become like all the other nations. And this desire to be like all the other nations expressed itself in their request for a king. Because of their refusal to honor Yahweh's design of worship and righteousness and justice, uh, the book of Judges tells us that they had fallen on hard times. The book of Judges is a chronicle of the repeating cycle of the holy nation falling under the thumb of different oppressive nations in their midst when they would stray from Yahweh's design and be enticed by the idols or the unjust ways of the nations, Yahweh would provide them with an opportunity to examine their ways and repent by allowing them for a period of time to fall into the hands of the nations whose ways were enticing them. They would be oppressed by the people they were envying. He seems to have wanted them to understand that the end result of following the way of nations and their kings would always ultimately be oppression and violence, just as they had experienced in Egypt. But rather than examining their situation in light of who Yahweh had been to them, rather than examining their situation in light of how Yahweh had warned them through prophets like Samuel, rather than evaluating their hardship in light of the overarching story, their overarching story as a people, the people sought to solve their problem not by returning to the holy way that Yahweh had laid out in his law, but instead by doubling down on their trust in the way of nations when they felt like their backs were really up against the wall, they demanded a king to go out and fight their battles for them. In fact, they actually say, despite Samuel's warning, they actually say in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. I want us to try to appreciate the irony of that statement so we can really digest what's going on here. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation called to be unlike the nations so that they could show the nations a different way. The nation that had been called or had been given uh, the law and placed in a land where they were supposed to live out the law as a light to the nations. The nation who had been carried on eagles' wings and delivered from their oppression in the great Egyptian empire. That nation demands uh, for the a king for the express purpose of being like all the other 
nations. When we examine this demand in light of the rest of the story, in light of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, we understand that this was more than just a request for a different type of leadership. The Israelites' decision to trust in a human king who would go out and fight their battles for them was a rejection of the holy way that Yahweh had been calling them into since the time of Abraham. That's why this action is interpreted by Yahweh in 1 Samuel chapter 8 as Israel's utter rejection of him. See, by putting their trust in the way of nations and their kings, they were rejecting Yahweh as king, and they were turning their backs on the very purpose for which they had been selected in the first place. This was more than a cry for help. It was a rejection of the sovereign call that the God who delivered them from slavery had given to them. And so Yahweh responded to their request by warning them that the end result of that decision would not be less oppression and violence and injustice, but more. Their demand to be like the nations would mean that they would ultimately reap the terrible consequences that are brought about by trust in the way of nations. And that would come from without, Yahweh made clear, as other nations mistreated them. They'd be oppressed by foreign nations like Assyria and Babylon. But the oppression and violence would also come from within the holy nation itself. Yahweh warned them that this king that they wanted, rather than protecting them, would actually take from them. The king that they trusted in to deliver them would ultimately take away what had been given, them, given to them by the God who wanted to be their king. As we've mentioned before, their king would be a grasper. And so in the midst of this request, Yahweh gives a warning. Beginning in verse 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 8, and this is what he says. He says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And I want to point out that that word that's translated ways is actually the Hebrew word mishpat, which is the word for justice. And so God has said through the law that this is going to be the type of justice that I want you to have among yourselves. They select the king, and so God then says, all right, you can have your king, but I'm going to warn you in advance, this is going to be the type of justice that this king carries out among you. He's not going to be for you everything that you think he's going to be or everything that you want him to be. These will be the ways, these will be the justices of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He's going to put your sons at risk, by the way. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. You notice uh, how the word his appears there so frequently because this, this king is going to be selfish. He's not going to be about God's type of justice. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And you remember last week that in looking at the law, we discovered that the Israelites were actually supposed to use, and this language is actually used in Deuteronomy, they were supposed to use the fruit of their fields and their vineyards and their olive groves. Those three things are spe mentioned specifically in the law. They were going to use those things to care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner and the Levite. But this king who would take their property and give it to his nobles, he would, he would take their property rather than give it to his nobles and consequently create injustice in Israel that the equal distribution of property among the families of Israel and the, the laws about justice within Israel, caring for the Levite and the, and the poor and the oppressed, were originally designed to prevent. So I want you to think about this in light of all that we've talked about last week in regard to the holy nation and its property. Their desire for a 
king, Yahweh is telling them through Samuel, is going to alter the design of the community that Yahweh had created for the express purpose of producing righteousness and justice and peace as a light to the nations. The whole system is going to be corrupted by this, this king that they're choosing. The king would take for himself and for the state what Yahweh had designed to be used as provision for the poor. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And so you can begin to see how injustice would come about. The tenth would be used not to take care of the poor as it had been designed under the law, but to pad the pockets of the officers and the servants who were, the officers and servants of the king who were his nobles. He will take, verse 16, he will take your male and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock. Again, this was supposed to be used to take care of the Levites because they didn't have any land. This was supposed to be their provision. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Think about this for a moment in light of what we discovered in our examination of the book of Deuteronomy last week. Yahweh saying to the holy nation that their selection of this king to rule over them, like the nations, would result in their digression back into the way of slavery from which they had been delivered by him. They would become under the hand of their own king exactly what they had been under the kings of the nations. They would again be slaves. They were rejecting God's way of deliverance from the way of nations, and so they would again fall victim to the unjust way of the nations and their kings. And so uh, Samuel finishes what he's saying to them in verse 18 of 1 Samuel chapter 8 by, by saying this, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Six times Yahweh says to Israel in his warning against relying on the way of nations that the king that they are requesting will be a taker. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Um, there's no way that we can go through 500 years of the monarchy of Israel and Judah this morning uh, in just a few minutes. I could do it, but you guys couldn't tolerate it, I'm sure. But uh, Yahweh's warning the people here what ended up happening. Yahweh's warning the people of what's going to end up happening, and that's exactly what ended up happening. Um, even Israel's good kings violated the law that Yahweh had given to Israel by becoming takers. David took the wife of his servant Uriah as his own and had Uriah move to the front lines of the battle so that he would be killed. Solomon accumulated great wealth and undertook marvelous building projects. First Samuel, or First Kings 11 tells us that Solomon enslaved the people and forced them into labor in order to fulfill his desire to have a kingdom that compared favorably with the nations. Jeroboam, one of the future kings of Israel who eventually became one of the most wicked kings of Israel and a pattern for other wicked kings in Israel. Jeroboam was actually put in charge, were first introduced to Jeroboam, in fact, as he's being put in charge of Solomon's forced labor. Like the people of Babel and Pharaoh in Egypt, Solomon became obsessed with extravagant building projects to demonstrate his majesty. And just like those nations, he sidestepped justice to accomplish his own selfish desires. Solomon also followed through on Yahweh's warning that the king would take the daughters of his people for his own pleasure. We're told that he amassed a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines and joined himself to other nations by marrying into their royal families. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, built on his tradition by, of taking, by ruling in a way that was even more harsh and selfish and unjust than his father. 
Even though his father had made the yoke of the people heavy, when Rehoboam comes to power, he actually tells the people that he would make their burden even heavier. My, I think he said something like, my thumb is going to be as thick as my father's thigh or something like that. The consequence, though, was that the kingdom was divided in two under Rehoboam's rule. The holy nation, because it lacked righteousness and justice, began to crumble just like every other human kingdom in all of human history. Jeroboam, the man who at one time had been in charge of Solomon's slave labor, as I mentioned, actually became the king on one side of the kingdom when it was divided under Rehoboam. And originally, Jeroboam became a leader among the people because he stood up for justice in the face of Rehoboam's promise to make things harder on the people. But ultimately, the power of becoming king, as it often does, would go to his head, and he would become an unjust king himself, and even alter worship in Israel to try to hold on to his power. 1 Kings 12 tells us that because Jeroboam was afraid of losing his power, because he was grasping, because he was afraid that if the people had to go back to Jerusalem where Rehoboam ruled, that he would end up, they would end up submitting again to the rule of Rehoboam as their king, despite Yahweh's promise to Jeroboam that, he, that if he would rule in an obedient way, he would be protected, because of his paranoia, which is what we talked about as the way of kings in our first week together, you remember, because of his paranoia, the scriptures tell us that Jeroboam set up golden calves in Israel for the people to worship so they wouldn't have to go back into Rehoboam's territory and perhaps submit to his way. See, whereas Yahweh wanted the people to remember how he had brought them out of Egypt in a grand act of deliverance so that they would understand his holiness and imitate him, Jeroboam gives credit to the people's deliverance from Egypt to the golden calves that he sets up. He alters the worship of Yahweh, the remembrance of Yahweh's power and how Yahweh used that power so that he can keep his own power. And in so doing, he corrupts the system that Yahweh has established for the holy community to, to encourage them to imitate the righteousness and justice that they honored in the king that they worshipped. Beyond these, there was also Ahab. Ahab, again, is considered like Jeroboam to be one of the most wicked kings of Israel. And he, again, sets a pattern that many of the other kings of Israel followed. Ahab was ultimately put to death for his wickedness because of what he did when he killed Naboth so that he could take his land. Ahab had property of his own, but he coveted Naboth's vineyard for himself. And initially, the, the scriptures tell us that he offered to give Naboth a piece of land in exchange for his vineyard, but Naboth wouldn't make the exchange. Naboth said that he would not give away the inheritance of his fathers. He wouldn't give away what God had distributed to his family in order to maintain righteousness and justice in the land as part of the law that we talked about last week. And so when Naboth wouldn't give him what he wanted, Ahab and his wife Jezebel had Naboth put to death so that they could confiscate Naboth's vineyard, so that they could get his land. And the king of the holy nation acts just like the kings of the nations. Rather than being a light to the nations by living into a different way, rather than recognizing the distribution of property as an anchor for righteousness and justice in the way that we examined last week in the book of Deuteronomy, Israel, under the leadership of its self-appointed kings, becomes just like the nations from whom they were supposed to be set apart. And then, although we could look at many others, the final example that I want us to consider this morning is Ahaz. In many ways, we could say that even Ahaz's name was given as a description of the way of kings. You see, in Hebrew, Ahaz literally means he has grasped. 
And as his name suggests, he continued in the tradition of the kings by grasping or by taking in order to establish and maintain his power over the people. Ahaz first grasped by seeking the protection of the king of Assyria when he had been instructed to trust instead in Yahweh's protection. Much of the language of Isaiah chapter 7 through 9 that we refer to very frequently during Advent regarding the coming of Emmanuel and the coming of this king who would rule the nations with justice and righteousness and peace. Uh, there's, uh, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, so forth and so on. All of that language that Isaiah gives us in chapters 7 through 9 is actually, uh, and it's very familiar to us, but that's actually given first to Ahaz to encourage him to trust in Yahweh's way rather than trusting in the way of the nations. But Ahaz, of course, as you might expect, because he's a king, and a bad king at that, doesn't heed Yahweh's warning. He seeks protection and stability in the nations, in Assyria. But then once he had allied himself with Assyria, he also, like Jeroboam, continues to grasp for power by altering worship in order to appease the king on which he was depending for protection. One of the things we're told in 2 Kings chapter 16 is that in order to appease the king of Assyria, Ahaz removed the Sabbath canopy from the temple. Now, there's no real description in the scriptures of what the Sabbath canopy was all about, as far as I can tell or as far as I've been able to see. But you remember that we mentioned very briefly in the first week of our discussion of Epiphany that the Sabbath itself had been instituted in order to help the holy nation remember that the king who had delivered them from Egypt, rather than enslaving them as Pharaoh had done, actually gave them rest and provided for them even as they rested. That's what Sabbath was all about. Sabbath was a liturgical reminder of Yahweh's holiness. Sabbath was an act of worship that was designed to encourage the people to live into his way, first of all by resting themselves, but also by giving rest to those who serve him. If you look at the Ten Commandments, within the command to observe the Sabbath, there's also uh, you know, the command to let your donkey rest and, and let your male and female slaves rest and, and all of that. Sabbath was about establishing a culture of rest in a culture, in the midst of a culture of grasping, we might say. And yet Jeroboam, just, uh, just like, rather, Jeroboam before him, Ahaz alters their remembrance of Yahweh. He alters their liturgy or their worship as he grasps for his own power. He interferes with the holy nation's ability to remember the holiness of the God who had called them to be holy because he was holy. But even beyond his trust in the protection of Assyria and beyond his alteration of worship, we're told that Ahaz, in his grasping, even sacrificed his own sons, letting them pass through the fire, the scriptures say, perhaps as an attempt to gain the favor of the gods of Assyria, or perhaps simply as another attempt to please the king of Assyria. Ahaz became an unjust tyrant to his own children. And based on the way that, or based on what we read in Isaiah around the time that Isaiah direct, addresses Ahaz directly, he was evidently also an unjust tyrant to the rest of the people that he ruled as well. All because he was grasping for those things for which the nations grasp. Power and security and perhaps land. If we had time, we could look at other examples as well, but even by considering these few, you can see how Yahweh's warning that the king that they were choosing would take from them actually came into, into uh, being. And so it's no wonder that as Isaiah is addressing the culmination of the way of kings in Isaiah chapter 1, he begins his message by addressing Israel not as a holy nation, but as a sinful nation. 
the holy nation had lost its way. Rather than becoming a light to the nations, they had begun to mirror the nations. They had become what they wished for, like the nations. In Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel even says that in their pursuit of the way of nations, they had outdone the nations in their wickedness. They had, and, and these are the words of Ezekiel 16, around verses 48 and 49, uh, he says that they had neglected the poor, they had been enticed by their pride and their abundance of food and their comfortable security in a way that compared unfavorably even to Sodom. And so as Isaiah addresses the sinful nation in Isaiah chapter 1, he begins in verses 16 and 17 by saying this, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You can hear in Isaiah's words the echo of the law where the people were encouraged to use their property in a way that cared for the fatherless and the widow and the orphan and the poor washing themselves, cleansing themselves, repenting. All of those things were a call to return to worship. But even more than worship, they also included a call to return to the way of righteousness and justice and compassion that had been laid out in the law. Of course, Israel and Judah, at least in Isaiah's time, did not heed his warnings. Ahaz didn't repent. And so rather than being a light to the nations, they ended up being characterized by darkness. At the end of chapter 8, where Isaiah has already attempted to address Ahaz's sin and calls him into trust of Yahweh without effect, he prophesies in the time of their distress, and this is in Isaiah 8.28, he says, they will look to the earth. And I think he's talking about their propensity for seeking solutions to their problems in men and their devices. He's talking specifically, I think, about Ahaz's reliance on Assyria and his worship of their gods and all of the resulting injustice that flowed out of that. But again, Isaiah says in verse 22, they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah's looking forward to their exile in Babylon. He's saying, because my people won't yield to Yahweh's holy way, Rather than becoming a light to the nations, they're going to be thrust into the darkness of exile. They're going to be thrust into the darkness of oppression and injustice. They will return to where they were preceding the exodus when I delivered them. Their reliance on their human kings will lead them right back to Egypt, so to speak. And yet, despite Isaiah's realism regarding the current situation of the nation, as he moves forward, somehow he offers hope. In the very next chapter, just two verses after what we just read, Isaiah offers the words that have become so familiar to us because of our celebration of Advent, as he speaks of the coming Prince of Peace, as he speaks of this one who will establish and uphold the nation with justice and righteousness and whose rule of peace will never end, he offers this message. He says in verse, Isaiah 9-2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. See, although Israel, because of their rejection of Yahweh as their king and because of their pursuit of the kings who were like the kings of the nations, had fallen into gloom and darkness, Isaiah still looks forward to a time when they would be restored. They would be released from their oppression just as they had been during the time of the Exodus. But then particularly toward the end of the prophecy that bears his name, there's a reminder that they'll be restored for the same purpose for which they had originally been selected. 
In chapter 49, in that passage that we looked at two weeks ago as we introduced the purpose of Epiphany, beginning in verse 6, it says, He says, speaking of Yahweh, Yahweh says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. So he said in Isaiah chapter 9, Light's coming. Okay? And then he says, in, Light's coming to the nation. Okay? That's what he says. I'm going to increase the nation or, or uh, increase the joy of the nation. You can read it. I don't, I don't have it. <laughs> but he's talking about Israel specifically there in Isaiah chapter 9. But then when he gets to Isaiah 49, he expands the vision. And he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will also make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Thus the Lord says, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One of Israel, to one deeply dis despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Ultimately, see, Isaiah is looking forward to a time when God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And we looked at uh, this passage again when we were talking about the scope of the gospel in our first week of Epiphany. Isaiah is saying here that what Yahweh is doing through this holy nation will reach to the ends of the earth. And I think we have to consider that when we consider the words of, of Jesus and the words of Luke, for example, at Jesus' ascension and, and the talk about uh, in Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth where the gospel goes. I think this is the context of all of that. But Isaiah here adds that the evidence that the earth has experienced the salvation of Yahweh will actually be that the kings and the princes of the earth, those who have most tangibly represented the way that stands in contrast to Yahweh's way, will submit to the holy way that had been made tangible and visible through the holy nation. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves, he says. The redemption of the earth will manifest itself, in other words, in Isaiah's, I think, understanding, in a reversal of the way of kings. When the holy nation becomes light to the nation, even kings will see the beauty of his way and honor it. This is Isaiah's vision of the redemption of the nations. And then in Isaiah 58, in the midst of envisioning the restoration of the holy nation, Isaiah draws their attention back to the way that he had outlined in the law. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah goes on to describe how this light that will be for the nations will be demonstrated through the holy people of God. And I want you to pay attention to the parallels between this and all the stuff in the law that we looked at last week. He begins in verse 1 of Isaiah 58. Cry out loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves but you haven't noticed. And so Isaiah begins by identifying in the people the claim that they want to know Yahweh's way. They think that they're living into Yahweh's way by going through the ritual of fasting. There's also an indication, by the way, in chapter 1, which we did not read, that they were going through many other liturgical practices that Yahweh had prescribed for them. Chapter 1 tells us that they were participating in the Sabbath in one way or another. It tells us that they were celebrating the festivals. They were bringing offerings. All of those things are in Isaiah chapter 1. But in the midst of all of those liturgies, they had missed the very significance of the liturgies themselves. The liturgies had always been designed. We talked about this 
in our first week. They had always been designed to remind the people of Yahweh's holy nature so that they would live into his way of righteousness and peace. In Passover, they were supposed to remember Yahweh's protection of them so that they would protect the poor and the orphan and the widow. In several of the other feasts, they were supposed to remember Yahweh's provision of them in the harvest so that they would reflect his character by providing out of the abundance of their harvest for the needy among them. In Sabbath, they were supposed to remember that Yahweh had brought them out of slavery to give them rest so that they would be moved to give rest to those who work for them. But they had missed the point of the liturgy. And so when they wondered aloud why Yahweh wasn't responding to their observance of liturgy, Yahweh says, you act like you haven't abandoned the justice of your God, but you have. And then he goes on in verse 3, Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Isaiah is saying, look, you can't live into Yahweh's way and re receive the blessing that he's promised when you abuse your slave. You can't claim to follow Yahweh the deliverer at the same time that you're beating your slave with your fist. If you're going to follow his way, you're going to have to be like him. Verse 5, will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes. Will, will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He's essentially saying, is the fast I choose about going through the motions of this liturgy? And then he makes a contrast beginning in verse 6. Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness like I broke your chains? To untie the ropes of the yoke? to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry like I shared manna with you in the desert? To bring the poor and homeless into your house like I brought you into my land? To clothe the naked when you see him? And I think the scriptures talk about how God kept their, their clothes and their sandals from wearing out while they were in the desert. And not to ignore your own flesh and blood. He's saying to them, Look, aren't the liturgies all about righteousness and justice in the first place? And then he says in verse 8, when you start doing these things, when you start mimicking the actions of your God, and I think we have to see that in those things that he mentions, that God had done all those things for Israel. And he says, when you start acting like this, verse 8, then your light will appear like the dawn. Remember Epiphany and the light to the nations. Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory, and this is imagery of the Exodus, where God protects them from the pursuing Egyptians, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. He'll protect you. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. And you remember, we were looking at the way of kings in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and Yahweh is going through, your king's going to take, and he's going to take, and take, and take, and take. And then at the very end, uh, verse 18, he says, and you're going to cry out, and the Lord is not going to hear you. And here he says, when you reverse among yourselves your commitment to the way of kings, I'm going to hear you. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, I will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night like the, will be like the noonday. Yeah. 
Think for a moment about this instruction in light of all that we've talked about during our celebration of Epiphany. What Isaiah is saying here is that the light of the holy nation will shine so that the nations will see its light and submit to Yahweh's way so that kings and princes will prostrate themselves and acknowledge that his way is better than theirs when the people of Yahweh stop their grasping and instead share. The light of the nation will shine among the nations when those who claim to follow Yahweh stop their finger pointing and speaking wickedly against one another and instead pour out themselves to the poor. Isaiah is saying, the world is going to see the light of Yahweh's way against the backdrop of the way of kings and nations when his people live into a way that he first articulated in his law, which, was per- which would perhaps most adequately be described as the way of righteousness and justice. Just as Yahweh's holy way had been intimately connected with generosity in the book of Deuteronomy, Yahweh again connects his holy way to generosity here in Isaiah 58. Or we might say that the holy way of Yahweh stands in contrast to the way of grasping, particularly within the context of Ahaz, whose very name means he has grasped. I can't help but wonder then, as I think about the way of kings and their grasping, I can't help but wonder if Ahaz's story might have been on the the mind of the Apostle Paul when he wrote the familiar words of Philippians chapter 2. You've heard it before. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is obviously, although he doesn't state it, it is standing in contradiction to the way of kings. And then Paul defines some of the particulars of the way by pointing to the example of the king that we follow. And he says this, Have in mind among yourselves, sorry, have this in mind, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Pay attention to the language who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Sounds like an alternative to the way of kings to me, y'all. Did not even consider equality with God a thing. Who cares about my political position? Who cares about my money? Who cares about my status? If my king didn't even care about grasping on to his equality, with the God of the universe, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And the Greek word there, doulos, can actually be translated as slave. This king, in other words, doesn't enslave others, but he identifies with the slave in his very nature and way of being. This king becomes a slave, being born in the likeness of men. I like the Bible. <laughs> this is good stuff, man. Get fired up. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by, obe- by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's no way that I can prove this. I will acknowledge that. But I often wonder if Paul had Ahaz, the grasping king, in mind when he wrote these words. I wonder if he was thinking of the way, kings, uh, the way of kings and how they take and intentionally contrasting the way of Jesus 
with the way of those kings. I wonder if he's thinking about the way of Isaiah in contrast to the way of kings, the way that Isaiah called the people of Israel to offer themselves, to empty themselves for the poor. I can't say that for sure, but it sure does seem interesting that where he lands. Just a few verses later, he talks about how because of Christ buying into this way, he's exalted. And then he goes on in verse 12. He's exalted and gets the name that's above every name. And then he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so he says, you know, if you take on the attitude of Jesus, God's going to do his work through you. Do all these things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then look at the, look at the phrasing. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. After talking about the self-emptying way of Jesus, after talking about the king who absolutely refuses to grasp, Paul reminds us that if we'll obey the gospel and live into the purposes of God, we will shine like lights in the world. Epiphany will be fulfilled. Could Paul, like Isaiah, be saying that our light will shine in the midst of the nations when rather than grasping like the kings of the earth, we live into the way of King Jesus, who didn't even consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but was willing to make himself nothing to call you and I into a different way of being. The table is a reminder that when God shines his light among the nations, when he redeems the nations from the empty way of kings, when he lifts us out of the mire of selfishness and injustice and war and murder and greed and violence, all of those things that weary us, everything that characterizes evil and everything that is a byproduct of buying into the way of nations, when he lifts us out of that way, it will not be through the way of grasping. It will not be through our domination of the nations. It will not be through our accumulation of wealth and power and weapons. It won't be through the building of towers and walls after the way of Babel. No, the table reminds us that redemption has instead come through the self-emptying, non-grasping way of the King of Kings. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.